welcome to Reinventing Home, a podcast about culture, creativity, and character. Today, we're going to be looking at our largest sense of home, the one we experience at work and in our community. I'm your host, Valerie Andrews, and my guest is Marjorie Kelly, one of the leading economic thinkers in Washington. Marjorie is the author, with Ted Howard, of The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. A senior fellow and executive vice president of the Democracy Collaborative, Marjorie is a leading voice in next-generation enterprise design. That means reinventing the corporation so it doesn't measure success solely by its profit margin, but by the well-being of its employees and the health of the environment. The fate of our planet depends on moving away from the old robber baron winner-takes-all model of capitalism to a more enlightened one, where the bottom line consists not just of profits sent to absentee shareholders, but of the people who actually do the work. Marjorie has been tracking some very promising developments in this area, and she has a five-point plan to share with us that will help jumpstart the economy. Marjorie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Valerie. We're in a crisis right now. We're facing huge economic losses as a result of the pandemic. Just how bad is the situation? The best number I've seen, Valerie, is that half of small businesses say they're afraid they're going to go under. That's huge. I mean, you're talking about local economies losing half their businesses. Right now, you can be sure that private equity is out there buying up companies for pennies on the dollar. Uh, They have an estimated $2.5 trillion in what's called dry powder cash laying around. They're going to go out and buy the best of what's left. So you're right. We're going to be left with a few big companies and, and the loss of most small business. What do we know about, say, the top 10 U.S. corporations' net worth compared to this smaller sector of the economy? That's a great question. I mean, when you just look at the top the top 10 U.S. corporations, we're talking Apple, ExxonMobil, Walmart, and so on, they have revenues of about $2.2 trillion, right? Now, you compare that to the U.S. government, which has total revenue of about $3.1 trillion. These are big numbers, and they're hard to make sense of. But let's think about it this way. If you look at the 10 corporations that are the biggest, they are two-thirds as large It's the world's most powerful government. So we already have this massive corporate control, and it's poised to get get much worse. What does this mean for the state of our nation if this wealth gap continues? I talk about how corporations, particularly publicly traded corporations on the stock market, they're designed to maximize profits to shareholders, which is predominantly the wealthy, 84% of stock market wealth is held by the richest 10%, and most of that's held by the 1%. And they do that by minimizing what are called expenses. And of course, labor is an expense. And so what you have is it's built into these companies to pay working people as little as possible and to pay wealthy people as much as possible. So is this going to translate into social unrest, into more and more unemployed, and how does this ricochet? You know, there are miles-long lines at food banks, right? And we're we're going to see the loss of homes. We're seeing people being pushed out of, of rental properties. Landlords have had some abatement on rent. That's going to stop. We're heading for a depression, Valerie. 
you say that we've been trying for decades to fix the problem with regulations to try and, and rein in some corporate self-interest behavior, but that never really gets to the heart of the matter. Well, I'd like to start with this uh, analogy, Valerie. So let's imagine that we're in a, in a town that, that's crisscrossed by these giant trains, and their owners are paying these drivers to drive as fast as, as possible. And so the town puts up speed limits, it puts up flashing lights, it brings out police to keep pedestrians off the tracks. But invariably, these trains are going to crash. They're going to cr- cause injury and death. So how does the, the town respond? It repairs the crossings. It puts up more fences. That's what we're doing with corporations. I mean, we're not looking at the fact that CEOs are paid to drive these corporations as fast as possible. They're paid to bring in profits for shareholders. And if they don't do that, then they get fired. This is the point that I've been making in three books I've written over the last 20 years is that we need to change the nature of the corporation itself. And we need to change the nature of investing. So get into companies that are designed to serve the public good. One company that I love to point to is Recology. This is in California. It's $1.2 billion. It's a, so it's a, a substantial company. It's is a waste hauling, recycling, and composting company. It serves three states. It's 100% owned by its workers. It's a place where a garbage truck driver is paid $100,000 a year. Because if you're not siphoning off all this profit for absentee shareholders, you have more to give workers. So they're benefiting the environment. They're controlled by and benefiting workers competing in, in today's marketplace and doing very, very well. I love to look at, at B Corps or benefit corporations, which means companies that exist to create public benefit in, in addition to being a real business and having profits. So one, for example, is Eileen Fisher. This is a women's clothing company. It's employee-owned. It's a B Corporation. And it is aiming to green its supply chains across the entire industry. So it's saying, Let's buy green fabrics. Let's have more ecologically responsible practices. I would love to hear the top values that you think we should have, in addition to the bottom line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is what we talk about in our book, The Making of a Democratic Economy. We talk about values are really at the core of every social architecture. Sustainability is a key one now that just people are getting. We have to have a sustainable planet. Inclusion is another one. There's this outcry that people of color have been excluded from the economy and need to be deliberately included. Community is a core value. I mean, we're not just isolated individuals trying to each become a billionaire. We exist only in community and we thrive only when our communities are healthy. These are the values that we see people instinctively care about today. We are talking about the nature of any human enterprise. I think that's exactly right, Valerie. I mean, we ha- there's a widespread sense that things are not right in our economy. What I would argue is that the reason the polity is in trouble is that we've never democratized economics. The economic system has become overblown and is seeking to overpower government in order to protect its own wealth creation capacity. So we need to we need to do the opposite. We need to bring democracy into the economy. 
In your book, The Divine Right of Capital, you explored our reverence for the almighty dollar and the, the almost godlike projections we have onto money. Can you tell us how the notion of profit got to be the measure of our worth? I went back and I read a great deal about the monarchy, and the king was called Your Royal Highness because he was considered at the very top of this great vertical chain of being. He was because he was closest to God. And so I think all of our ideas about caste and racism, colonialism, the view of indigenous peoples as savages and lesser humans, it's all part of this world view. We got rid of the monarchy, but we still have this basically plutocratic view in our economy where we think it makes total sense that Jeff Bezos has more wealth than anyone could possibly envision. Well, you're we essentially think- saying that we have we have an economic monarchy. We do. We do. A few people, they're like the dukes and the barons, and they have all the power and control all the assets. That's the order that we have now. It's very, it's very much an economic monarchy. I'm thinking about Adam Smith, who in the 18th century spoke about the invisible hand guiding the economy. Do you think we're trying to redefine that invisible hand as a social conscience today? This is really fascinating. Probably the last five to ten years, there has been a revolution in thinking about evolution. We have been taught, and this is certainly true at a certain level of scale, that competition among individuals leads to survival of the fittest. And what evolutionary theory is now realizing is when you look between groups, cooperation leads to more success. Now, this hasn't found its way totally out into the public awareness, but it's pretty well accepted by a lot of evolutionary scientists that at a higher level of scale, cooperation is superior to to competition. I'm thinking about the work that you and Democracy Collaborative have been doing lately to try and help us make these shifts Mm -hmm. away from what we have rightly called social Darwinism. You have come up with a five-point plan to jumpstart the economy after the pandemic, and I would really appreciate hearing the broad outline. The Democracy Collaborative, we're a a nonprofit. We work nationally, and we call ourselves an R&D lab for the democratic economy because we're making this broad point that it's not enough to regulate companies or regulate investment. We need an economy designed to benefit all of us. First of all, you need to preserve local economies. We've suggested, for example, the creation of local economy preservation funds where communities can come together in businesses, help keep them alive, favoring ownership by employees or ownership by people of color. So so how would you set up those funds, Marjorie? We've heard from dozens of cities who are interested in this, and we're working with three cities now setting them up. You could do it a couple of ways. At the city, county, or state level, you could even do a consortium of cities coming together. We're going to be proposing federal legislation to support these kinds of funds, empowering local communities to drive the work. New York City is in a very interesting position right now because of all the shuttering of the restaurants and the small businesses. And there was an article in the Times last week that said, oh, isn't it great Silicon Valley is moving in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this idea of giving incentives to attract absentee corporations, that's exactly the opposite of what you want to be doing. That's a lose-lose form of economic development. But what I would also say is, is New York City is looking at potentially doing 
uh, preservation fund that would be focusing on uh, people of color and employee ownership. And the assistant mayor, Phil Thompson, is a real leader in this work. That's good to hear. Number two is extend public ownership. So please tell us about that. Our five-point plan. So first, you have to preserve our local economies and then extend public ownership. Now, here's an example, and that is a public option for pharmaceuticals. Why don't we have the vaccines that we need? Well, there isn't enough money in it. It's you know better to make make a drug that somebody has to take every month forever. You're going to make more profit on that than you are giving exactly. somebody a vaccine, and then they're and then they're immune forever. So the incentives are not properly aligned. But if you had a pharmaceutical that was owned by the public, owned by the by government, then you could you could put the public purpose at the, at the heart of it. And we we have created a report proposing this. There is a lot of uptake and interest, and so this is this is moving ahead pretty well. You mentioned PG&E with the fire problem in California, and I really zeroed in on that because I know Governor Newsom has been talking about taking over that function, so it's no longer in private hands. Yeah, this was an amazing story, and in California, people probably know this to some extent, but yeah, PG&E sparked the campfire and burned down this city because there was this there was one wire that was running through a wooded area. It was a hundred years old and they hadn't checked it in ten years. Right? Now, why would a company with seventeen billion dollars in revenue not get its act together to go out and check a line that it hasn't checked in ten years? Well, what it was doing is it was buying back its own stock. It spent literally billions of dollars buying back its own stock. And that's just a mechanism to drive up your share price. On the other hand, you had SMUD, the San Diego Municipal Utility District. Its purpose is to serve the people of San Diego, to give them reliable power at low cost. It's widely accepted that it does provide better power at lower cost. And they had no fires and they did not have blackouts like PG&E did. So are Mm -hmm. we finally waking up to the fact that the public sector is terribly important? I think so. Reagan said, what are the most terrifying words? I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And so there has been this concerted campaign, I think, to discredit government, to discredit public ownership. We need government to organize the production of masks and, and get the ventilators in the right place. You can't do away with government and give everything to the private sector. And I think that is that has been the myth that has been sold us for a very long time. And it's it's so obvious today that it's not true. Okay, let's go on to number three, build community wealth. Right. How do we actually build back better? I mean, we need to build back so that wealth stays local and recirculates locally and is held broadly in many hands. And this is a, a form of economic development that our our organization, the Democracy Collaborative, has pioneered, and we call it community wealth building. And an example of that is the Evergreen Cooperatives in Cleveland, three employee-owned companies that have large contracts with anchor institutions like nonprofit hospital systems and the university. And it's about keeping wealth circulating locally and hiring from inner cities. The Evergreen Cooperative Laundry, a great number of people employed there are formerly incarcerated. So that's an example of community wealth building. We worked also in Preston 
England, which is another Rust Belt city that was pretty beaten down. And, and they were named the most improved city in the UK. They moved the needle on unemployment. And they did this through the power of anchor institutions and declaring themselves a living wage city. We're taking back our economy from the 1%. And we're doing it by action at the community level through economic development. I'm thinking about another really good example, too, and that is the Community Regional Bank. When I was living in Massachusetts, there was something called the Common Capital Fund, and it was based in Holyoke. They would reinvest in community housing, mm-hmm. um, especially in areas that, that were underserved. They would reinvest in local businesses. They would reinvest in local agriculture. And it was one of the most dynamic influences on the Pioneer Valley. But mm-hmm. This was a place where you could go and say, I have this business. I could serve so many more people if I could grow. And Common Capital would become your partner. And they weren't just the banker who came in and looked at your bottom line. They would actually walk you through your next phase of development and be there with you every step of the way. I love that story, Valerie. Yeah, that's exactly right. We need financial institutions that are designed to serve the community and not designed to extract as much wealth as possible for absentee owners. Another great example of that is Bank of North Dakota. This is a bank that's owned by the state and uh, it's been around for 100 years, and it, it acts like a mini Federal Reserve inside the state. In the 2008 downturn, this locally rooted network of financing, they kept lending, even in the crisis when the big banks, Bank of America and so forth, all pulled back. So you're absolutely right. You need finance in the public interest. Okay, let's go on to number four, a green stimulus package. Tell me what interesting things you're doing with energy. So we know that in addition to COVID, the other big crisis we face is is climate change. We've got to move to, to a green economy. And we tend to focus on the physical technologies that are needed, like renewable power and so forth. But who's going to own the next economy? Is it just going to be corporations owning it again? Can we use this transition to a green economy as a way to also transition to a more democratic economy. And this is what we argue for. And for example, with the green stimulus, paying attention to who receives these contracts, and you'd be contracting with employee-owned companies, and, and can you have community ownership of power rather than having corporate ownership? In fact, our organization is in dialogue with the Green New Deal various groups and, and bringing these, this democratic ownership into the framework. So I'm happy to say there's, there's some great progress being made there. Well, that's, that's your number five point, to establish a next generation institute to support a democratic economy, which is just terribly needed at this point when we're having to revise everything from the ground up. Well, exactly. We want to create an institute that would systematically train people in this kind of information, and the models are proven, the approaches are known. When President Obama left office, he spoke about the need to look at how fast the American public can adjust to innovation. You're saying that Americans can adjust pretty fast as long as they have a stake in something, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I have a very good friend who is a a Trump supporter, and uh, when she read my latest book, The Making of Democratic Economy, one of her friends said to her, well, employee ownership, that's socialism. And she said, no, it's not. <laughs> this is about ordinary people having 
having a stake in their own in their own business and having some self-control of their own destiny. And I loved that because we do find that employee ownership is one of those ideas that crosses the aisle. I mean, it's the only policy I, idea I know that has been promoted by both Ronald Reagan and Bernie Sanders. We've had this debate about socialism, but what I'm hearing from you is that we can reframe this whole thing and talk about a model that is actually based on a long tradition of close cooperation and sharing of resources, which is very American. Yeah, that's lovely that you say that. I think that's right. You know, we have this idea somehow that there's just two economies. There's either capitalism or socialism, right? But why are there just two? (laughs) I mean, that's crazy. Those are both ideas that go back to the 18th and 19th century. We're in the 21st century. What we need is a democratic economy. We need, we need an economy that is, is for all of us. Human beings tend to get creative at the darker turning points in history. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of all the hardship, again, that Americans endured during the Depression and how that resulted in a host of social legislation from the WPA and people going back to work on the infrastructure and the roads and the bridges to the creation of Social Security. I think in a way, people coming together in community and working together, I, I think that's, that's absolutely true. I think it's also unavoidable, Valerie, that there are going to be struggles. I mean, I don't think any elite is going to let go of power without a struggle. And part of the way that that struggle manifests itself is with misrepresentations and clinging to old myths that are that are no longer true. So that's why I think one of the most powerful tools we possess is legitimacy. I mean, we hold the tools of legitimacy. We, the people, if we see that racism is no longer legitimate, that's going to have a huge impact. That is going to spiral through so many projects and initiatives. The same is true with our economy. We need to recognize that the way the economy now is designed is not legitimate. I mean, the 1% owns it. And once we see that and we recognize that and we learn how to language that, I think that's going to create huge momentum for change. 